folks, Johnny Laser here. This is the after party from our February 27th, 2001 show that you can see on Vimeo or YouTube by following the link in the description. The topics range from techniques to mount stereo slides to eye tests for children and the now highly rare stereo jets. You'll hear from Dave Kumo, Ron Labby, Dr. T, also known as George Themelis, David Starkman, Lee Pratt, Jim McManus, Paul Hutchins, Christian Jam, Bob Swarth, and Joe Pedoto. All right, so you can unmute uh, if anybody has any questions and would like to to pop in. Now there's some questions about slide mounting that George answered in the uh, in the chat. I wanted to uh, bring up this uh, important piece of hardware for mounting. Uh, and maybe George doesn't know about it and he should sell these, but I made my own and it's actually a, a stereo loop. And it's one of the most important things I own. And I always use it when I'm mounting because I can actually just see in stereo uh, right away the mount. So in getting the right orientation, it's very quick and previewing it that way. And you can also set the window very easily and this is always on your head. You can move it out of the way or move it into place. What do you say, George? Yeah, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good idea and probably a lower cost idea. I've been using this for years. Uh, this was a light box made by Seton Rochewaite, but then I modified it by putting our own alignment gauges on it. And this was a hinge from a, uh, a gate. And I chopped the lenses off of a uh, Radex binocular scope so I can swing it out of the way and get at the mount and see it magnified. And maybe having one like Ron strapped to my head would be more convenient, but uh, I've been using this for like 40 years or whatever. The lenses look a lot better. Uh, they're okay, you know, it, it's it's worked fine. Also Koekeren um, made something like this, right? Remember that? Yeah, he made a, a commercial version of what I just showed you and he called it the, uh, the SAM, the Stereo Active Mounter, <laughs> which uh, John Golden used to sell. And uh, Ron made a comment. Yeah, if, if you know what you're doing and depending on the picture, especially magnified, you can mount using the edges of the mount for reference. But sometimes you've got something that's, uh, there's nothing at the edges that's, you know, the edges could be dark and you have nothing to refer to. And that's where I find the alignment gauges it have a lot of horizontal lines to use for checking vertical adjustment. Again, if using a stereo camera, you won't really have probably a vertical adjustment to deal with or not much. But when you're using uh, cha-cha or other stuff, I find it really handy to have some horizontal reference lines to get things lined up. George really covered the basics. For those of you that haven't done it, that's it. Oh, I do personally, however, uh, I like to put them in the mounts as I cut them. I've always found that easier than having all these loose film chips spread out on a table, maybe because my table's such a mess anyway. <laughs> but I just do them as I go. And once you're into the sequence, always got like three mounts going at once. That's how I do it. <laughs> do you have a source with the gloves, George? Those, those 
Well, you can buy them, I guess, on eBay. And the tweezers, too. They're not expensive. Just as a hint, I got a box. I got a whole bag of those real cheap. You can get them like x-ray technician gloves. You can just Google that, and they're extremely cheap because they throw them out all the time. But you get a whole stack of them for very little. Yeah, one option is to get these uh, anti-static gloves. Um, I think I get mine on Amazon. Uh, they're not that much more expensive, but certain times of the year when there's static electricity and the the uh, film chips are just sticking to your hand. Uh, that's that's that can be a little bit of a problem. Um, so I use uh, static free gloves, which helps somewhat. And uh, George was saying he uses his glove on his right hand. I use a, a glove on my left hand, and I use these um, mini rubbers mm-hmm. uh, on my uh, uh, forefinger and thumb, and uh, that way uh, I can sort of pick up the film with one hand and then sort of move them around and, and, and take them with, with these two fingers here. So everybody's got their own uh, ideas, but you know, I love George's uh, presentation because uh, some people are nervous about mounting uh, slides and uh, it actually is fun you know, to see your, your images come alive. Uh, mounting other people's slides is not always as fun, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, and, and to me, one of the most important tools is a nice, really sharp tweezers, which I find for picking up the film and nudging the pin bars back and forth, or sometimes I use my, anyway, or in the metal mounts, the, the especially the realist mounts, a tweezers to nudge the uh, uh, film chips back and forth oh, is very I, handy. I would never bring sharp tweezers near film, personally. Um, I just be too scared of, of scratching the film. That's why I use the rubber fingers and I can use my thumbnail, uh, my fingernail to, to move things around. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm always paranoid about scratching uh, film. So it's interesting well, that you use the tweezers. No, it's just, well a little FYI, just a little FYI for anybody who's listening who hasn't done this before. Uh, you're hearing from guys who really know what they're doing. Like, if you just take a few notes here, you're going to miss all the potholes, man. You're going to miss all the landmines. Continue. I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. I'll just say, you know, I understand Ron's uh, statement there, and I certainly, if you want to be safe, do it Ron's way. Uh, in all these years, I think maybe once I've slipped and scratched a corner of, of a film, but I've, I've never really, all these years, damaged a film because of the tweezers. <laughs> You're obviously not as clumsy as I am, but that's another story. Well, whatever. <laughs> but it is, uh, I have to say, even though it was always time consuming, uh, one of the things I miss with digital that I, I really, there is an enjoyment to the physical aspect of mounting and getting the window adjusted. And it's a process and uh, there's a, a physical enjoyment to doing it. Um, even though, you know, to sit down and mount a roll of film, you know, could take an hour or whatever, or longer, depending on what you're doing. But, uh, you know, it, it is a very enjoyable physical process, I think. Uh, I just want to add a quick story. You guys all have awesome tips. And I mean, that's how I started doing, you know, 3D was film almost 30 years ago. And I'll, I just want to share a quick story. My very first NSA in, uh, convention that I went to was in 95 in Atlanta, north of me here in Orlando, Florida, and um, started by, you know, I was driving distance. Hey, I can swing that. And I thought, wow, I'll bring a, 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 I heard they project slides. So I'll bring a slide tray, one of those rotary ectochrome slide trays um, full of my best shots. 
<clears throat> which I had never projected before. I'd only put them in my homemade viewer and, and they were just basically pre-mounted for me in two by two mounts because I was shooting full frame at the time. <clears throat> so in my homemade viewer, which basically I had two single viewers taped together in the front, uh, that was, you know, I didn't know it was sort of accommodating it for me and your eyes had individual ability to accommodate as well for height differences. So long story short, I show up to the convention the very last day, I believe Sunday. Um, I remember Larry Moore was in charge of that. He was the chairman for that one. And, um, and I, I got my slides up and they're uh, shown and they looked, they were all like out of alignment. I, I could, be, I have very accommodating eyes and I could barely fuse them. And I was like, so embarrassed. There were a few that were worth showing, but there were a few that were like, Ooh, I just wanted to crawl under the table. So that was my first entry into the world of you need to specifically mount them precisely for projection. Cause in a handheld viewer, your eyes can sort of accommodate for that and move up and down. <laughs> Nobody projects slides anymore though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember showing. Uh, I remember showing Dr. T a trick on the. Uh, remember uh, George? Remember those uh, mounts that I found that fit into the TDC 116 full frame, like two by two. You could fit a pair of them in there and shove it right in there, and it would survive the trip. <laughs> yeah, David Starkman, uh, Ray 3D used to sell those. Yeah, Radex. I full think they frame are. side by. Yeah. Well. Well, there were two kinds. I mean, the Radex uh, binocular scope had a frame that, that held two two by twos. Aluminum frame, uh, right? It was an aluminum frame. Yeah, aluminum frame. Yep. I got one right here. I'll get it. it. Right in the TDC 116. <laughs> yeah, but they're also well, the the older model that had two channels. There's a two inch channel yes. and a one and five eighths channel. The yep. later the later model would only accommodate realist. Right. Uh, but we also sold a cardboard uh, two inch by four inch mount made by uh, Pegco that had uh, slip-in pockets. It was not as precision accurate. You know, those slip-in cardboard mounts are not near as accurate for projection. Yeah, you get into all kinds of cool toys when you uh, mount slide film. I remember the biggest amount that I ever had to mount was 36 rolls on a trip. And I came back and it was like 900 stereo pairs. That's it. That's the identical yeah. one. Yeah, this is the Radex uh, frame. And two-by-two two two mounts just slip into it. I had one laying around. Part of their yeah, system. I was able to do full frame on my TDC 116 for the first time. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. their their parallel for okay. shooting. Uh, David's got everything. <laughs> Wait, well, well, here's the binocular scope. Oh, uh, look at that. And here's a, a mounted pair in the uh, mm -hmm. in the frame. That binocular scope looks like it has decent lenses. Look at that, it's focusing and everything. Uh, it focuses, or they're huge lenses, so there was no interocular. Let me get this back in here. Well, anyway, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it has glass lenses. It was pretty good. And way back when, uh, somebody uncovered like cases of them brand new in the box. Uh, and so for, for a couple of years, they were being sold really cheap, like for 20 bucks or something, wow. uh, till the, this guy sold out all of the, these cases of them that he had uncovered. So. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's, it's got a pretty long focal length. So the, the, the magnification's not that great. That's why it was good for the light, chopping a pair off for the light box I have. So I've got plenty of room underneath to work on the slides while I look at them. Nice. Yeah. Some, somebody asked about long-term storage of stereo slides. What do you recommend? 
drop a, a, a dehumidifying packet in your whatever you keep your slides in. Not touching the slides, but I usually get some of those little silica gel packs and just put them in along with my little, I've got those old plastic slide boxes and I used to get them, um, you know, just from my local lab, which is long since closed down. They don't do onboard on-site processing, but they were little things that held two by two slides. And then of course I used to get, uh, oh no, they switched up to boxes that were long enough to accommodate a realist slide. So I could actually use those little plastic boxes, the long ones for realist format and then the old fashioned ones for two by two format. So I've got like those in a plastic tub with a couple little plastic tubs with silica packs just to try to cut down the moisture coming into the plastic tub. Dr. T, do you, do you stock those um, sheets that like, kind of like, uh, uh, they're meant yes. for realists, you do? I do. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Because I have them around here somewhere too and they're great because then you could basically put them in a, in a binder with um, and they fit into the sleeves very nicely, but that's a very good point. Throwing some silica—that's uh, not silica, but the packet. Yeah. And so, and you, you ever <laughs> wonder what to do with those things rather than send them to keep them around because they are useful. Right. Yep. <laughs> I, I don't know if these are still being made. This is a uh, a box made by Flambeau, and it would be a good thing for Doctor T. Let me see if I can get it open. So right now, this one's—I've got it. The dividers set up for realist, but this same box will also take two by twos, and it has these dividers. It's called an infinite divider system because instead of just fixed positions, it's got like a little tooth tracks all the way along the things, and you can put it anywhere to create the uh, the spaces in it. I use boxes like David Starkman uh, showed. However, now some of them are advertised as being sprayed with an anti-rust composition. So I have been afraid to use any that say zero rust on them. Well, at the time I, these I bought years ago, I believe they're polypropylene and uh, you know, they seem pretty archival. I haven't heard about this new thing, but I guess if you can buy them without the anti-rust, uh, that would be that, the worst. That's what, that's what I do. A lot of them now say anti-rust. I worry about the film. Can you say what you, in terms of viewing and enjoying what you've shot, do you find yourself not looking at the digitals as much as you would a film slide that you had? This is a tough question. I'm going to ask all you guys, by the way. What do you cherish more, you know? That slide piece or a thing that's digital on the screen that you it's kind of nebulous. It doesn't really exist until you print it or go through those pro and printing is a big hassle. There's no question that the the slides, the, our old slides, which were almost all shot on Kodachrome and in a good viewer, you know, like a red button realist, or I've gotten spoiled with using a a viewer made by uh, Kovan Ekerin, which has really super lenses and very bright light source. But, you know, so viewing an original slide in a viewer, you know, can't be beat. But, you know, since I'd say 2005, almost all my photography has been digital and all, almost all the viewing has been digital. And even the old slides that we shot, uh, we, you know, luckily I live with a, a great wife who's, scan, who's a scan maniac. And so she has scanned tens of thousands of slides and viewing them on a, on a monitor or on a 3D TV, 
is certainly easier and the more frequent way I view these days. Um, and shooting with, with uh, something like the Fuji W3, uh, you know, I think is, is uh, gotten to be more fun in a way, maybe just because I'm older and doing all the mounting is now, you know, more of a hassle and stereo photo maker totally spoils you for great, perfect mounting, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that and a 65 inch 4K 3D TV, you, you just can't beat it for that kind of viewing. But the uh, hand viewing experience of an original slide still is, you know, the ultimate. I, I guess, you know, the, the portability doesn't exist too, because it, you, that's a, a personal experience. If you want to take it out with you, there's nothing like a slide. You know, wh how, how can you, sh in other words, in terms of sharing, in, in a way it's easier. I guess you could put it on the internet, you could say you could share with a million people. But then again, they're locked into a chair, you know, in front of a monitor, right? They're not experiencing it the same. It's a different experience is the point, I guess. That's that's the answer. I, and I wonder how any of you guys view the difference in the in the ecosystem of actually using a, um, a digital rather than a, than a slide. How about you, Ron? I know it's, it's, again, we understand it's easier, but what do you cherish more, you know, at the end? Is it easier as opposed to more profound? The biggest problem with film is sharing it. I mean, um, you know, we can't share film on Zoom. Uh, we have to go digital, you know, and the next step in sharing is VR, I think, you know, headsets, because that's the only stereoscope that people are currently buying. And I see that as, you know, where the future of 3D is going. So that is necessarily digital. And it's all about how much resolution we can extract uh, from from those uh, devices and it keeps getting better. So, you know, as as technology progresses and more people embrace this, I think, you know, it's going to be actually good for 3D because when people see something, you know, in 2D, they're in the headset, they go like, this doesn't look right. What's wrong? Oh, it's not 3D. Well, 3D is what makes this so amazing. I think that will really come across. Um, in VR, so we'll see. But then again, I guess the big question then, you know, is do you care how long the image you shot will last? Because yeah, you could still look at a a, a, car, a, um, a a stereo card from the 19th century, it's still around. Will there be anything around to show a JPEG? I'm confident there'll be stereo cards from the 19th century around, and I'm confident that there'll be Kodachrome. Well, if, if digital goes down, then, you know, I mean, every film that's currently being made, I mean, every, um, I mean, you know, the world is, is, is embraced digital, you know, beyond. Beyond the rational. Yeah, I mean, beyond, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're locked in. Uh, if, if it goes down or, or things aren't ported to the next, iteration of it so the holographic whatever uh you know storage is the, maybe the next phase um you know then perhaps it it's not going to be available but uh i don't see that happening it's just too ubiquitous if someone doesn't cherish the image enough to go to the next format the next because the jpeg that'll eventually you know give that 30 years they'll say what is that you know and then it limits your throw is what i'm getting at you know uh Film really doesn't as much. Okay, you can get a fire, all that stuff. I'm not arguing with that. Well, even film. Nor am I, nor am I arguing going back, you know, because I, I mean, have like, I have five Fuji, so I'm not saying yeah. that. No, I mean, but they, but film is a problem because, uh, you know, color film, uh, it, it deteriorates and it loses color and it gets digitized to, 
to bring it back and then you got to out put it into film again <laughs> yeah right well i guess that's the whole concept if you have that to to scan you can keep going you know you you, you have it anyway yeah. that's that's a, that's interesting kind of a, argument yeah yeah paul are you still around did you stick around yeah i'm still here oh yeah. excellent excellent wonderful thing to be as an optometrist you know someone who, who who preserves people's vision you know you're like a hero and again the youngest that you ever tested for stereopsis uh probably about three years old called a tno fly test where a child who cannot necessarily point to something you can show them a rather scary picture of a blowfly on a sugar lump and as they look at it it stands out towards them and if they re if they recoil uh, almost in fear then you know they've seen it in 3d you're talking about a ve the vector graph it's the polarized print uh that stereo optical and that fly's eye picture goes back to like i think the 1940s late yeah, 1940s sure it's it's they've been using it forever and it still works you guys uh starkman and pinsky uh used them to make some uh some vector graph prints for uh sale at one point didn't you guys we do we had two different ones and i i hope other peoples are holding up better because stereo optical had a process that we thought they had solved some of the uh archival problems of vector graphs uh, by uh, using uh, better dyes and laminating them to keep them from oxidizing. But we found some of those ones that we had made that are, were our own copies have deteriorated. So Fly's Eye is definitely a vector graph. I don't know if we still have one, but I mean, I've seen many over the years. Oh, yes. Polaroid vector. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So how, what, what's the material? I mean, how is it working? This was invented in the, in the 1940s or late 30s. Uh, Vivian, did you know Vivian Walworth? One of the key people behind the development of it. It's basically a little hard to describe. By stretching the polyvinyl chloride in one direction, that sets the polarization angle. And uh, on, a, on a substrate, like a, a piece of plastic, it's got this uh, stretched material on both sides, each done at 90 degrees to each other. And then using something that was called wash-off relief film or something like that. It was like paper. You'd have your left print on one, print it in reverse and the right, and the thing was sandwiched, uh, impregnated with chemicals, sandwiched, put through rollers. And basically the, the uh, so-called print, which is really on clear plastic, is made up of different densities of polarization on the front and rear surfaces, the front side being the, the right image and the back being the left. And if it was left that way, if you held it up to the light, you had a, a polarized transparency. Or for making a print out of it, they would paint the back silver paint, which would reflect and maintain polarization to make it into something. And that's what the fly's eye is that makes it into a so-called polarized print. And then this was later updated, Vivian Walworth was involved with this also, into something called a stereo jet, where instead of the complex way they did it earlier, it was they had a special material that could be uh, printed on using uh, inkjet printers with special chemicals in the inks that were used to make full color vector graphs, or they called them stereo jets. And Ron can tell you more about the stereo jet. He made them. Stereo jets basically the same principle, but done in a more modern, reliable way, I guess, is the way you would say it. Well, yeah, there there were color vector graphs, but yeah. they were very rare, very, very difficult to do because each side 
had to have three die transfer processes that were exactly matched. And then on the other side, you had to match those three to the first three. And uh, uh, yeah. I, so, I, I've only seen one, I think, in my yeah. life. And, uh, uh, I've seen a couple, and, uh, and we had a couple, which is now totally deteriorated, yeah. and they're unviewable. No. Uh, but yeah, so it was six layers that all had to be perfectly in register to make a color version of it. Yeah. But, but with the uh, stereo jet, it was done with the inkjet process, which made it easier to get everything aligned, I assume. Yeah, well, you only had to align the second pass. So, you, you know, you've got this, this uh, sheet and you, you print the first side, the left side, whichever, and then you, you know, you have to let it dry overnight. And then the next day you uh, actually, you print on a piece of paper, the reversed image and you can align the first print to the print of the right side and tape it down. And it's a track paper that would go through. There was only one uh, printer that they made the inks for, the Epson 3000, and it was track paper. And then you fed, fed it in. And uh, with any luck, it would match the exact uh, register of the first uh, print and you'd get a nice uh, stereo jet pair. They stopped making the stereo jet materials. Why did they start? Was it just marketing or what? Why just wasn't a demand for it? Like the process was never really uh, that perfect. I mean, there were always uh, issues with uh, with the inks. Blacks weren't weren't uh, coming through right. They would you know ghost, and um, it, it was. It was never uh, also uh, viable. Uh, very few people wanted to uh, utilize it. So they're putting, you know, all this R&D mm. into it and they couldn't really sell it. They had nobody that had a need for it uh, or enough people that had a need for it. So how, how is Paul, are they still, are they still making that flight thing you showed? That little test for the kids? Yeah. Yeah, we still buy them. I don't know whether they're still being made. Or it's old stock. But yeah, uh, we still, still buy them. Stereo yeah. Optical in Chicago, I think it is. Yeah. Stereo Jet has DNA. Oh, it was. It was. It was made by, uh, developed by a branch of Polaroid called the Roland Institute. Now, if a say a, the, the youngest child is saying about three years old, what do you do at that point if they're well, do parents come in? They don't come in and say, "Can my kids see stereo?" They just yeah, this is just part, is yeah, this part right. of an advanced test you do, or is it? it well, it should be a routine one for a, a young child if you've not seen them before, just to, as means of establishing what their visual system's like. Many of them you can't actually establish any standards of vision or accuracy reading the you know twenty twenty chart or whatever, um, but you can get an idea by whether they have decent stereopsis, whether their vision standard is equally good in each eye. Or not, and it's the ones that haven't that you need to check for, for lazy eyes, amblyopia, squints, strabismus, etc., where they might need spectacles to help overcome that. Listening into a uh, an afternoon or evening uh, on last weekend, uh, where the Stereoscopic Institute, I think, was giving uh, all we all weekend seminars, which I joined. Some of you may have done, and there was a speaker who was a uh, professor. At the biochemistry, I think it was at um, Washington University. And she was explaining how only at the age of 40 did she discover stereoscopic vision because she had an alternating strabismus which had prevented her from having binocular vision and how she'd been uh, taught how to, by means of eye exercises, um, to 
have both eyes function equally together to, to generate stereoscopic vision. And that, you saw that, didn't you, John? Yes, yes. Now we, we, I, we actually, I, we took a photo. She uh, was at a, a presentation. Jerry, you yeah. around? I think we'd seen her before. I forget her name, unfortunately. Was that Stereo Sue? Stereo Sue. Sue, yeah. yeah. She wrote right. a book. Fix my yeah. gaze, and another fixing one. My I, gaze. I got that. Yeah, fixing my guy. One over. I got that over here. I actually read that. Book. She, yeah, yeah, she lectured at one of the NSA conventions as well. Rather fascinating. I think the takeaway on that is: don't be afraid to show kids 3D, and absolutely don't be afraid to drag them over to their mother if they don't go wow, because it's, 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 as she can attest to, it doesn't. You can't fix it often. At once you get older, it's you don't really have a, a lifetime to fix it. Obviously, those are exceptions in there, but. Pretty much all the rule is if you don't catch it. Am, am I right, Paul? Am I, what am I talking yes, about? Yes, you're dead right. Yeah, you're dead right. Especially with amblyopia, which is a, commonly called a lazy eye. And uh, it's because of a developmental problem with children where if they have a significant so-called refractive error in one eye that they don't have in the other one. And if it's not corrected with spectacles at an early age, then the eye that's been deprived of a clear image or in their developmental years doesn't develop properly. Now, uh, Stereo Sue had not got that condition because she'd been able to alternate and she hadn't got a refractive error difference between the two eyes. Adults, sometimes if they've had a, a squint or a strabismus and they have it cosmetically straightened, so their eyes look straight rather than being turned in or turned out, can often then develop double vision as an unintended consequence of an operation because they've been used to seeing what's called abnormally, abnormal retinal correspondence, uh, even if they are not seeing particularly well in stereoscopic vision, if they have their eyes straightened, then it messes everything up and they can see double vision where hitherto they weren't doing. But, but do they uh, adapt to that after a while? It's difficult. Mm. Yeah, because I know I've read about the experiments where people wore the uh, prism glasses that make everything yeah. upside down. And yes. after a few weeks or something, the I can't believe it, but they adapt to that yeah. and see things right side up again. Here's the thing. The thing, important, the thing to realize is not that not having stereo vision makes it so you can't look at cool comic books or really or, or use a W3, but it can affect your career choices. You can have like someone who doesn't see stereo who, who could be a great pilot or an astronaut or a, a surgeon that will certainly limit their career choices. It's not so much watching 3D movies. It's, it has a real ramifications in someone's life. All right. Uh, so I'm sharing the stereo optical website uh, on the part about the the cards we've the uh, test oh, we're talking about yeah. says they've been doing it for over 65 years and besides the uh the it's, you can see here original fly stereo test and all of these so they are still being made it comes with two sides in the folder there's the fly's eye and then this series each of these diamonds it goes from like all of them being at the same level to one of them subtly being a little higher than the other progressively getting higher and higher how far no, you go actually it's the opposite it's it's less yeah. high and less high all right okay sorry yeah. i got it i got it reversed yeah yeah, yeah. Uh -oh. we gotta send you in for a test man yeah well <laughs> i haven't i haven't used this test in years so i forgot yeah. how it went yeah because yeah the 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 less high that you can see the more acute your stereopsis is yeah and actually i've seen this same diamond test in a uh you know in a classic stereo card format you know, they used to have a, a ophthalmic version of the Keystone Viewer uh, that had tests like this in side-by-side yes. -side pairs. And, I, and I've seen that, that test. I remember even getting that test as a kid in, in a stereo viewer.
I never got any of those tests. You know, that's Most why it blows my mind. Yeah. Paul, yeah. how long has yours lasted? Sorry? Most how long have you had yours? I've had mine about 30 years. 30 years? Okay, so it holds up, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Most it of the eye doctors now use random dot stereograms instead yeah. of the eye test, and mostly for children. Christian? Yeah, yeah. May I attract your attention to this book? Oh, please do. This is a stereo test from the okay. former German uh, Democratic Republic, the, the socialist part of Germany. Yeah. It's, it, it reads um, stereo viewing exercises for children from five years to 10 years. And it has anaglyph printings in it and glasses. It's really great. It's very beautiful made. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of images and a lot of fun for children. And there you could check if your, if your child was able to. That's brilliant. To see 3D properly. Well, it's good that they, they can make one good thing in Eastern Germany. They can figure one thing. Cars they weren't doing very good at, but that looks like a good book. I wonder if they're still making that, if that's still available. No, no. it's uh, you, you have to buy it from the from the um, Antiquariat, from second hand. Yeah. yeah. Second edition, 1979. Oh, 40 years ago. I have a, I have a question for, for probably for Paul. Uh, can somebody who is colorblind see stereoptics through anaglyph glasses. I've always wondered if, if yeah. you, does it matter whether you're colorblind or not because the filters are giving you two separate pictures. Yeah, I know. I would think it's possible, although I've not, your question hasn't arisen before. My dad, <laughs> my, my, my dad is colorblind. My dad is colorblind and he can see uh, anaglyph images. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I'll tell my wife's eye doctor who's been asking me about this. <laughs> My dad was 60 years when he first saw Anaglyph, and he always was told, because you're colorblind, you can't see it. And then he went to his son, me, and I showed him an image, and he said, wow, that this works. <laughs> 60 <Excellent>. years. <laughs> yeah. It's all in the noggin. That's the thing we forget. You know, the brain is doing such complicated calculations to, to create the, the, the depth that... Uh, and, and you know, also accommodating when you have a problem, and that's one of the issues, right, Paul? It, it accommodates very well. You know, I, I know I had a, a, a torn retina, piece of retina, and literally what was happening is the one eye was filling the other eye in. Unless I closed one eye, I would not notice the, the, the hole starting. I Luckily, I do enough with stereo that I realized I had a problem and I got it taken care of immediately, but it filled in. Like the what was coming in this side, the brain is so good at that. It just filled in the hole, yeah. you know, unless of, close, unless of course you closed one eye. As you all know, we have the blind spot. Right. We, you can easily demonstrate the blind spot where your your uh, uh, fovea and the uh, uh, optic nerve uh, creates a, uh, a hole in your vision. And mm -hmm. it's, your brain seamlessly fills that in. It's been doing that for 65 years. That's why those problems can be very insidious, man. You know, because you, you if I would have not noticed that, I, the whole retina would the wallpaper may have dropped. You know, I just caught that one little spot and they were able to resolve it. Robert, you had something to say. Sorry. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. Uh, last week I tuned in just a little before three and you were in the middle of a long uh, talk about using some kind of red light flashlight thing. And it's, but I missed the whole point of it. Is that, did, was that part recorded or available or was that just- It is recorded and I will send you when we're done, I'm gonna send you the, the article, which is out of a college in, uh, in London. We're ready to wrap unless anybody's got, I, I think we pretty much all covered everything. Thank you guys for showing up again.
Not me. Not me. Not me.